On a number of occasions, I visited Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where there's a substantial Amish population. As you're probably aware, it's not difficult to distinguish who the Amish are. For starters, they travel in black horse-drawn buggies right down the same streets that you're driving in your cars. It's pretty easy to distinguish them. Even in the warm summer months, Amish men wear black hats, long sleeve dress type shirts and black pants with suspenders. The women wear loose fitting ankle length dresses, lace up boots and bonnets. It is easy to distinguish the Amish in Lancaster County, one place among others I'm sure, but distinguishing genuine followers of Jesus Christ is not nearly so easy. Our dress, I believe, according to scripture, is to be modest, it's to be appropriate, it is to be humble. And that may distinguish us at times from our world to varying degrees, but Jesus never called us to wear clothing that radically distinguishes us from the world and identifies us with one another. In other words, we may dress modestly in a situation where there is immodest dress, but that won't necessarily link us up with each other and identify us with one type of people or one clan. Now there are those, as you're aware, who think our clothing can be used to distinguish us and can be used as an effective witnessing tool. I'm thinking particularly of the makers of what is sometimes referred to as witness wear. Have you seen this? Uh, Various forms of casual apparel in which you literally wear your Christianity on your sleeve or your chest or your back or your baseball cap or something like that. Uh, You see it advertised from time to time. There's slogans, there's Bible verses, there's things that are, uh, draw attention to the fact that the person wearing the t-shirt or whatever is, is a believer. Well, I don't know about you, but I honestly uh, don't hold out a whole lot of uh, hope that that's going to accomplish a lot for the gospel, simply wearing a verse on your cap. Now, that might draw somebody's attention, might get some interest. It might identify you as a Christian. I don't think that the cause of Christ really is going to go forward on that kind of apparel. On occasion, that may work, if less dramatically than a horse-drawn buggy identifies the Amish or their dress codes or something. But clothing identification is really, in the end, largely inconsequential. It holds no real meaning because it says nothing actually about Christ himself. It may say that you are a follower of Christ, but that clothing itself does not necessarily say anything about Jesus. But there was a t-shirt that I saw recently that did very much catch my attention, and I think it has something to say to us here. A man wearing a t-shirt that said this, they will know that we are Christians by our t-shirts. Well, again, that might work a little bit here and there, but I don't think that's going to really carry a whole lot. Now, there's a joke there, obviously, in the t-shirt, but what's behind the joke? What's the truth that allows the humor to ride? The truth underlying the humor is no joke at all, of course. They will know that we are Christians not by our t-shirts, but all of us could fill in the blanks. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Jesus taught us this here in John chapter 13. Let's notice verse 35. John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We considered last week the teaching of Jesus concerning love. Jesus taught His followers to love God with all their heart and to love their neighbor 
as they love themselves. Now, Jesus defines neighbor as anyone who enters the circle of your influence. The kind of love that he calls us to is the kind of love that loves others as we love ourselves. Shows that same kind of attention. And that attention includes even our enemies. We are to love our enemies as we love ourselves. We're called as Jesus' followers then to overcome evil with good. To do good to those who persecute us and say all manner of evil against us falsely for the name of Christ. To bless and not to curse. In fact, to be cursed and to return that curse with blessing. This is the life to which Jesus has called us, the difficult path of discipleship. This is not teaching that we find natural, to love anyone in our influence. Again, as I mentioned last week, there's many times when people under our influence or in our region, in our area, simply irritate us. They're in our way. There are others we'd like to ignore. There are others we believe are below our dignity to interact with or something like that. And certainly when it's someone who is an enemy, we do not find it at all natural to love them, to treat them as we would desire to be treated and to act toward them as we act in our own interest. That does not come naturally to us. But we know, do we not? Some of you have talked to me about this this week. We know in our spirits that this is right. Not natural, but it's right, and we know it. For our Savior gave himself to a torturous death for us while we were his enemies. He laid down his life for the people who hated him. That's how Jesus treated his enemies. That's the love to which he calls you and me. And so today we turn, we have just a little more to accomplish here, but I'd like to look at further instruction from our Savior on this matter of love. We turn now to the words of Jesus here that he spoke just a few hours before his betrayal and ultimate crucifixion. The context of John chapter 13, we find there in verse 1, it was just before the Passover feast. The feast at which Jesus would lay down his life as the Lamb of God. Jesus knew that his time had come. We notice here the next phrase in verse 1. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now that departure will come through death. He knows his time has come. Everything that Jesus says and does from here until his death, he says and does with the full knowledge that he will die as the Passover lamb. There are few people in this world that have that kind of opportunity. Now, there are many who are dying, passing away through a disease or something like that, but very few people who have all of their faculties, all of their health, all of their knowledge, and they know they're going to die in a few short hours. Very few people have that opportunity. Everything Jesus says here, he has that completely in his mind. That's weighing upon him. And so everything that he says carries great significance John prepares to recount Jesus' death, and he does so inserting the comment here. You notice there in verse 1 that he loved his own who were in the world. That's an amazing phrase. All that could be said about Jesus, John says, Jesus is about to die. He knows that he's about to die. Here is the characteristic phrase that I would like to attach to the life of Jesus as I prepare to tell you about his death. He loved his own to the end. 
And the idea here is that he loved them completely. The Greek word telos is used with completeness, with maturity. And what does it mean? How does he demonstrate that love? I believe that this is what chapter 13 largely is all about. He's explaining what that means. Verse 2, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now that's so in verse 4 makes absolutely no sense. Would make no sense to any of us if it wasn't for the ministry of Jesus Christ. He knows that he's going to the Father. He knows that all power is in his hand. Therefore, he puts a towel around his waist. In verse 5, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So the disciples come here to this upper room with filthy feet. No slave was available to perform the customary foot washing. Jesus sees the need. I don't want to labor this too long, but... Think of all that's weighing on his mind. And in that moment, he says, these individuals that I love have dirty feet. And he gets down in front of them on his knees as their master, and he washes their dirty feet. He assumes the humblest, the dirtiest, the most distasteful job and he loves the disciples as he loves himself. If you have dirty feet, you want to have clean feet. Jesus puts that together. There's no one washing feet. And so he washes their feet just like he would want his own feet to be cleaned. Caring for their bodily need. Let's jump down to verse 12. There's quite a bit of teaching that's going on here. We're skipping through this, but verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. That is, he would have been, we understand, stripped to the waist for servant's task and now takes on his robe again. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. How obviously. He cleaned their feet. He'd done something much more than that. Hadn't he? Verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. That's what he had done. Not simply wash their feet, which he had done out of love, but he had set an example in place for them. That you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Judas leaves to betray Christ after this. Then Jesus gets down to the business of a few last moments of intense teaching. And stunned, I believe, by Jesus' humble, self-giving love, the disciples download Jesus' challenge to them here. Verse 33 of chapter 13. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. 
That is, they could not come as he was going or at this time. I can guarantee that they're all ears at this point. Think about this setting. They have lived with this man for some three years. Day in and day out, they have never seen him sin. Jesus never said, please forgive me, I was wrong. Now, he had all the capacity to do that, but he never said that. He never sinned for three years in their presence. They'd never seen him falter. His every word and attitude and deed had been full of grace and truth. Jesus is the greatest teacher in the history of the world, and they know it. And Jesus tells them now that these are among his final instructions. Do you think they're listening? Knowing his hours are numbered, Jesus is not wasting words. He is carefully choosing his last lessons. He knows he will be the Passover lamb. He knows the hours are limited. And he says, I'm going to leave you. Now I want you to hear me. Verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. A new commandment. In what sense is this a new commandment? Leviticus 19.18 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is not a new command in point of time. It is not a novel command in that sense. It is a new command in the sense that its motivation will become the loving sacrifice of Jesus Himself. It is new in that it will become a principle written on the hearts of His followers by the Holy Spirit as they look back to the cross and they remember Jesus washing their feet. This is a new command. It's a new day. It's a new era. You'll understand this soon. But here's what I'm saying to you. Love one another. And that command is never going to mean the same thing again after this night as I've washed your feet and in a few hours when I lay down my life as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. It's a new command in that sense. A new command in that it bears a new poignancy, a new motivation, a new demonstration, and a new standard. The standard is, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now that's not the first surprising conclusion Jesus draws in this chapter. At least as far as strict logic, we might think Jesus gets down, washes their feet, says, I have washed your feet, now you wash my feet. But he tricks them just a little bit, it surprises them there just a little bit when he says, you have watched me wash your feet, now you wash one another's feet. Now, it makes perfect logical sense as well because he's going to leave. But here we have something of a similar rationale. We might think in very strict logic that people will know that we are Christ's disciples by our loving them. If we love the unbeliever, will they not understand that we are Christians? Now, that's true. And that's a blessed truth. But here Jesus turns it a little different direction and he says they're going to know that you are my followers because you love each other. And so he says here that the distinguishing mark of the believer is love for other believers. Let me go back to the Amish. 
There is a picture etched in my brain, I'm sure, forever. But I was a teenager, driving in a car, with shorts and a t-shirt and the window down on a hot summer day, and there was a young girl, maybe a couple years younger than I was, mowing the lawn of her farmyard with a full-length dress and the lace-up boots and a bonnet and the, a non-motorized, one of those rotary type of lawn mowers, this massive front lawn in the sweltering heat. Now, she really stood out. It was the picture I just have never forgotten. And when you are in a car and you're bearing down, going the speed limit, but you're all quickly bearing down on a black buggy, in the middle of the road, drawn by a horse, you notice that. Now here's what God is saying to us. You know what this world's going to notice? They're going to notice people who really love one another because they're my followers. God wants you to stand out in this world, to stand out by the love that you have for other believers. Jesus assumes that unbelievers are watching us, doesn't he? He he assumes that they are taking note. It'd be easy for all of us, I think, at times to think this world never even realizes that we're here. They completely ignore us all the time. But Jesus assumes that's not the case. They're watching. And how do we know that he's right? Some empirical evidence. Just watch when some great Christian leader fails. That shows up in the newspaper, doesn't it? There's, there people are watching. They know. They're looking on. There's unbelievers that are watching your life. If they know that you're a Christian, I hope by God's grace they do, if they're in your influence, they're watching you. And they are watching the way that you relate to other believers. Jesus assumes that unbelievers are watching. He assumes that they're taking note. Unbelievers do observe us, and Jesus essentially gives them the right to do so. He gives them essentially the right to judge our relationship to Him by how we treat one another. That means that your neighbors should be able to see a unique love between you and your mate. They should be able to say that that husband and that wife have a kind of love that is different. And it's got something to do with the fact that they follow Jesus. They should be able to say that parent-child relationship and children's relationship to their parents is a different kind of love than they're used to seeing. They should see in our relationship together as church members that there is a uniqueness in the way that we regard each other and care for each other and love one another. Peers at school, workmates, they should be able to see that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Over the years, I've heard so many stories of workmates where some of the worst problems that you all have in a secular setting of work is with the other Christians that are there. But let's remember in those frustrating situations where there are Christians that think all kinds of goofy things, they're not straight and they cause some troubles with you at work and they might even harm your testimony, remember that is a project. It's a project for you to love that person in order to demonstrate to a watching world that there is a uniqueness to those who are one in Christ. And I wonder, by way of test, if an unbeliever sat in on every conversation that you have had in the past two weeks with other believers or about other believers, would that individual be moved to see that Christianity is real? 
And if not, we have work to do. We are to characteristically, consistently lay down our lives on the line for one another. We are to treat one another and to care for one another with the same intensity of concern that we show for ourselves. We are to be patient with one another, so kind and so humble and thoughtful that people identify us as followers of Christ. You don't have to wear it on a t-shirt. What you need to do is to wear it in your actions and in your words. Let me just go back to the point of those of you who are married. Let's remember here, I think it's a good point to bring in, that you are a living demonstration of the relationship between Jesus and His church. And what is the word that you attach to that relationship? It's to be love. And in fact, in Ephesians 5, that's exactly what God calls for husbands specifically to do, to love your wife. Love is to epitomize your relationship to one another. I think we need to be called to consider the isolation that we are pushed to in our culture and to realize that that isolation should not affect our families, it should not affect our church. There is isolation on the basis of race. There's isolation on the basis of economics. The poor and the rich should be able in God's grace to love one another in such a way that people stop and say, wait a minute. They share something that's more important than money boundaries. They share something that's more important than race boundaries. They share something that's more important than age boundaries. And I would encourage those of us who are the old people in the church, like myself, we need to interact with those who are young. And those who are teens, you need to interact with those who are young and with those who are old. Those who are children, we need to cross over those boundaries that limit us. Race and economics and age and whatever else it is, and to realize that there is a love that we can have in Jesus Christ that pushes all of those boundaries aside and says to a watching world that can't relate on any of those terms, there's something about them, oh, they're Christians. That's why they act that way. There are some very bold criticisms that have been kept alive from the ancient church. Various Roman governors who critiqued the Christians as those who loved one another. Look how they love each other. It was almost a derogatory statement. These people don't have any sense. They cross over all of these barriers, all of these boundaries, and they love one another. Well, let the world ridicule, but at least let's let them see it. But that we do have love for one another. Loving one another will mean that we confess our wrongs to one another and grant forgiveness to each other. It will mean that we prove patient with one another's weaknesses and shortcomings. It will mean that we lovingly seek to encourage those who sin and that we'll be there to help pick them up and carry them along. It will mean that we will not hide from or ignore those who frustrate us. I don't know how you can love someone you never talk to or pray for. It will mean that we will learn to properly handle differences. This will say a lot about us. This world knows that there are differences all over the place. There's hostilities everywhere. Every time there's a relationship, there's difficulties, if it's a meaningful relationship. But the world should be able to look at us and say, yes, they differ. Yes, they have disagreements, they have troubles, but they know how to handle them lovingly. It's not a big deal to like those with whom you agree. But how do you treat those with whom you disagree? 
Do you employ the world's tactics of avoidance and dismissal and slander and harsh words and hatred? Or do we say, I have a higher calling from God. I will love my neighbor as myself and I will love my enemy. Now Jesus presses this idea further in a passage that does not directly use the word love, but it assumes what he has said here, and it ends up in the very same place. I think they're parallel themes. I draw on this passage here because it emphasizes, again, the world's response to the way that we relate to one another. So let's go forward to John 17, forward in time. John 17 and verse 20. Now here the context has shifted slightly. Jesus has left the upper room with his disciples, probably in order to escape Judas Iscariot's traitorous designs. He's teaching the disciples, and in John 17, he's come now to the place of, in fact, praying for them and praying for us. Not long before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 20 of John chapter 17, My prayer is not for them alone. Now that means what? My prayer is not for them alone. My prayer is not for the disciples who are with me right now. Not just for them, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. This is a reference to the apostolic message that we as later believers have come to embrace and that is recorded in Scripture. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. What does he pray? Verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That they may be in us. I think that's an obvious reference to the spiritual union that we have in Jesus Christ. When a person comes to saving faith in Christ, there is a union with Christ that draws us together with all other genuine believers in Christ. Not just those who claim to be Christian, but those who are genuinely regenerate by the Holy Spirit of God. We are drawn into a oneness there. I believe this is clearly what Jesus refers to. But can the world see this union? Can the world see it when we are united in one spirit in Christ? Can they visually understand that and see that? Notice here that Jesus assumes whatever he's talking about, he's assuming the world can see it. Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that our oneness as genuine believers will serve as an apologetic for the incarnation and saving mission of Jesus Christ. That the world may believe that you have sent me. So again, we come to this same conclusion. Our relationship with one another is to prophesy or to speak out the truth about Jesus Christ crucified. The world should see how we relate to one another and come up to this conclusion. Jesus did come. Now let's take Sammy the sensual skeptic. He has no time for God at all. He's got time for beer and football and ill-clad women, and that's kind of his life. He doesn't mind cheating or stealing. If he doesn't get caught, he's an okay guy by the world's standards, but he's got no room for the life of God. It's just living for his gut and this world and the sensual pleasures of this. That's all there is for Sam. Read his Bible. He's heard of it before, but he's never read it, has no care to ever start reading it. And so he has no capacity to navigate the fine nuances of Christian theology. And he hears Christians who differ on various things and he just blows it off. 
means absolutely nothing to him. To talk theology, to discuss the Bible in detail with Sammy is really fruitless. It'd be like reading a book of logarithms to him. It is just not going to sink in at all. But let's ask this question. Does Sammy have the capacity to perceive love between people? He does. He does because he is created in the image of God. He has a sense of the emptiness in his own heart. He has a sense that there is something that's not clicking in his soul. And he knows the love of God, though he may not be able to articulate it, maybe has never even thought about it consciously. He has a sense of the love of God in his soul because he's made in the image of Christ. He's never experienced that love. But he is wired with the capacity to see it. He can detect it. How do you show Sammy the gospel? You've got to proclaim the truth of Christ if you have that opportunity, if he's your next door neighbor, because without the knowledge of Christ crucified, there will be no salvation. He must place his faith in the saving message of Christ. But we're talking about a man that that's just not, it's not resonating with him. The one thing we can do to reach Sammy is to love one another. And that might particularly be with your family if it's a neighbor, but it might be someone at work, it might be someone who's in connection with our church, it might be somebody who's attending our church and doesn't know the Lord. And by the way, there's a little sideline here, but somebody walks in our church, I think too often the general tendency is for us to say they're Christian. I guess I'm always disoriented to say, I don't believe anybody's a Christian until there's some proof. Putting on a smile, maybe having a Bible under your arm, sitting in a conservative church doesn't make anybody a Christian. There are people who attend our church that don't know Christ as Savior. I'm convinced of that. And what they need to see is that there's a love between us that bears witness to the truth that Jesus did come and reconcile us to God through oneness in Christ. What can Sammy see? Well, what does he see if he sees us fighting? What does he see if he sees orneriness and hatefulness and incapacity to function together in unity? What does he see? That's the same thing he sees everywhere else in his life. He blows off any thought of Jesus having come. Now, what kind of unity are we talking about here? Many would stand up and say, here's the kind of unity. It's that kind of unity that draws together all people from all different creeds into one organizational unit, the ecumenical approach to love. We bring everybody together, and there's strong emphasis on that in our own town and in our own relationship as pastors to our town. If we will show the love of God, if we will just get together and have a meal, or we will get together and have a service that everybody gets to once, once a year and kind of grins and bears it. That's going to show that we're one in Christ. And boy, if we can get our pictures together in the newspaper, that's really exciting. That's really going to show that we're one in Christ. I don't think that shows anything to anybody at all. Particularly when we have people that though they claim to be Christians, don't know the gospel of Christ. They are not genuinely converted on the basis of the true knowledge of Christ. That's not a union that's going to prove anything to anyone. But as I mentioned, is this only spiritual union? 
Jesus seems to say here that there is an external apologetic. That is, there is an external proof of our relationship to Christ that needs to be seen. Now, how does Jesus handle the quote-unquote believer, it wasn't Christians at that point, like it is in our context, but the, the believer of his time that denied the truth of God? Matthew 23 is a good illustration. He speaks very directly and challenges them in their lack of faith. In fact, I think what Jesus saw when he saw an unbeliever was someone that was a sheep that was beaten down, oppressed, and needed a shepherd. When Jesus saw someone who was self-satisfied in their false religion and was using religion to really deny their relationship with God, Jesus got very hard. He said hard words, and he rebuked. And he set himself against such individuals. So we're not talking about a union which is just external. We're talking about a union which requires that we share saving faith in Christ. Now that circle is in our setting a fairly broad circle, isn't it? There are people who know the gospel of Christ. They have embraced that gospel. They have been regenerate through the Holy Spirit's influence in their life, but they don't think like we do in all the nuances. In fact, many of them are doing things in their churches that are directly hurting our church and are hurting the reputation and the cause of Jesus Christ. When and if, as we talk about such individuals at work, in the neighborhood, or in this church. If there's an unbeliever that comes into this church and they listen to us talk about such people, I believe that in our church services, and if they could come to every meeting, private and public, they should be able to conclude that though this church disagrees with some of those people, there is love, there is grace, there is humility as we draw out those differences and discussions. We must love Jesus in our brothers and sisters with whom we are united in Christ. Our criticism of other evangelical Christians should be respectful, it should be honest, it should be informed, and we should stick to the truth of God and promote His glory. But we should avoid caricatures, straw men, and cheap shots. There is no place in our services or conversations for these things. Proper critique is right and good, but cheap words and just tearing people down behind their backs is godless. Our words in such situations should be fair and honest and kind and edifying. That does not mean we should commend those who should be challenged. There's where the imbalance comes at so many places. The idea is then that to love means we must always speak commendably about other evangelical believers. I don't believe that's the case at all. There are things for which we must take a position, we must stand, or we will be decayed by those positions. They will cause a decay in us. We must challenge false thinking, false doctrine, false direction. We must not avoid controversy out of fear of conflict. But hear me carefully. There is a big difference between bullying speech and genuine backbone. And I hope that we will always get that straight as a church. It's really easy to stand up and sh take a shot at a conference, at a denomination, at a church across town while they're not here, 
and to say harsh, mean, critical words. That's not backbone. Genuine believers with whom we disagree are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And though I can be led to tears for what they are doing to hurt the cause of Christ sometimes, they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if Jesus died for them, then I have no business not loving them. There are churches that are teaching false doctrine. They are practicing false practice. It's frustrating as we watch many churches these days entertaining people out of solid Bible-preaching churches. And while we may be more faithful in some respects, God also knows, however, that we have our own failures, and we need to be accountable for those failures. So we need to speak the truth in love. I think is how it comes down to it. Not to compromise the truth, not to give up the truth, not to sell out and take excuse behind the idea that, hey, we're a loving church. We need to speak the truth. We need to be willing to speak names in a proper way and lay out positions as we have done here in recent days. But we must always remember that there's something bigger than our differences and our different opinions on these things. There is a Savior who has hung on a cross and has died for people. He has saved those that he has called his own. And if they're his own, then we need to love them, and that love should mark what we do. Now, we have a little challenge here in Minnesota, because we have this little thing called Minnesota Nice. As a matter of fact, our culture has been deeply influenced by Christian love and the concept of Christian love. That doesn't mean everybody's a Christian. It doesn't mean that our nation was ever a Christian nation. I don't believe it ever was or ever close to it. But Christianity has had a deep influence upon our culture. And so we do have certain ways of expressing ourselves that appear loving if they aren't. And we might refer to that as Minnesota nice. Let me bring in a little perspective here, just from my own perspective. Things aren't so nice in Lithuania. It's not so nice there. And I go to India, multiply that about three times. There's a scowl on pretty much everybody's face. There's a complete disinterest in who you are, what you're doing, get out of my way kind of approach. Something like we might find in New York City, I suppose. And that's a joke, but there's a lot of kind people in New York City too. But there's just an ugliness and a harshness in that world. I think particularly as we came into Shambhu Day's church on the first Sunday, having been through airports and having seen a lot of people and and, uh, seen that harshness to walk into that church and to see for the first place, after having looked at thousands and thousands of faces, to see a smile. And to see someone come up and welcome you and demonstrate love, not just for us as visitors, but for one another. It was a whole new world in that little room. A whole different place. The contrast may be a bit less distinguishable here in a country so influenced by Christianity, but people who observe us relate to one another in this church or who in a different context consider our relationship to other believers, they should be able to see a difference. We must interact with unbelievers for this to happen. Isn't that what Jesus is assuming here? If you don't know any unbelievers, you never interact with unbelievers, you have no influence in the life of any unbeliever anywhere, how can you demonstrate that you love believers? We must fight an isolation that keeps our witness 
hidden from view. It says also that we must love God with all our heart because we can't love one another if we don't love God with all of our heart. The only thing in the world that will allow us to love others is to love Him. And it says that we must realize that we have a unique relationship and responsibility to all people who are genuinely saved. That's not compromise. That's following the teaching of Jesus. How we do that, how we apply that, we must always honor the truth. But if we know someone who is a genuine believer in Christ through the saving gospel of Jesus, that is an individual that we must love. And we must demonstrate that love to a watching world by His grace. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, Father, for the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful, dear Father, for your goodness to us and that you bring these ideas to us in your word. Again, we don't find them particularly natural. It's a lot easier to just be critical and harsh and to ignore and to keep up the boundaries that isolate us along the lines of race and age and economics and the like. These things just come naturally to us. But I pray, God, that we'd be reminded that we are now your people. You've called us to a whole different life. You've called us to love Christ in others. And as fallen and as weak as they are and as we are, I pray, God, that there'd be a deep-seated commitment in our hearts right now to push to that end, to be people of love at all times with your people, and that that love would spill out from us to a watching world, that we would proclaim the gospel of Christ to that world by our lives and then by our lips, that we would draw others into this fellowship of love. God, this is my prayer for our church, for our families. I pray that you would help us to deal honestly with these truths and to realize that we are in bad shape if we are not demonstrating love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us, dear God, to make the changes that we need to make and to grow in this area. I pray for our church. I pray for each one and ask that you will do this work through Christ. Amen.